Welcome to the State of Developer Education, a podcast by Major League Hacking. We explore how technical leaders are creatively tackling the developer education gap to help prepare the next generation of technologists for the real world and build businesses that can adapt to any changes in the technology ecosystem. I'm your host, John Gottfried. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the State of Developer Education. I'm John, your host, and I'm so excited to be here this week with Josh Kreitz, who leads developer relations over at Aztec. How's it going, Josh? It's going well. How are you, John? Pretty good. I'm excited for our conversation. So I always like to start every episode going back to the beginnings. I would love to hear your story of how you first got interested in tech and programming. So I'm a self-taught programmer, basically through Free Code Camp. But that started when it was probably around like 2015. I was working in the ski industry in Colorado, kind of doing like tourism stuff. It was really fun. But I was kind of just like doing new things and traveling. And my travels took me to India for a while. And I realized when I was there that I had like a lot of opportunity compared to just like many other people in the world. And I was kind of underutilizing that opportunity just with like my communities and even like my family, like I have my brother and my dad are both in tech, but it kind of like inspired me to like learn more when I got back to the States. So I ended up buying an Arduino, like hardware controller. And I had never programmed anything. I'd never built hardware before, but like I was making some like sound and light shows, I guess on this little board with like LEDs, like a theremin. It was pretty cool. But like, as I was playing with this Arduino, I realized that like, most of the power in this like little machine was like in the software. Like there were only a certain number of hardware pieces that I could fit together. But then like, depending on how I wrote software, I could do so many different things that got me into software. And then I was like, web development was just a really easy entry point because there's so many free resources online. And then I realized once I could like read a little JavaScript and like look at a web page and see how it worked and see how it was breaking. I was like, this is like a superpower. It just like opened a whole world for me. So Free Code Camp was like a huge thing. I had heard about Ethereum around the same time. And there was this like narrative of like programming the world computer of Ethereum in like 2016, 2017. And that was just like really inspiring to me. So that kind of helped me get over some of the hurdles and like challenges with teaching myself to code. Just having this like this kind of grand vision. I was kind of an idealist at the time. So it helped me like, yeah, get through the hard parts. So Yeah, that's kind of how I got into software development and then kind of like put me on the path of where I am today. That's really cool. You know, it's funny. I feel like a lot of people who have been in tech for a long time have like the opposite dream. They're like, I've been writing code for 10 years. I want to go live on a ski resort and like, you know, just have fun. And you kind of went the opposite path. Yeah, it's sometimes I have regrets because I'm like, oh, man, I could have gotten in earlier or whatever. But at the same time, like this way, at least I don't have any regrets. I can't ever say like, oh man, I wish I went and like ski bummed for five years and then traveled the world. Cause like, oh, I did that part. Yeah, I just did it before I started my career. So yeah, definitely no regrets. That's super interesting. Yeah. Maybe the grass is always greener. I don't know. It always is. Yes. So you went straight into like the web three space, right? Like you said, you learned a little web development, did some hardware hacking. What what drew you to Ethereum specifically? This one podcast stands out in my mind. I can't remember who was speaking about it, but it was kind of just like they laid out this vision of like 
computing from like the 60s to today. And early on kind of described this landscape of like database development and then networking kind of happened in parallel and in silos. And like we see this with the emergence of like the epitome of epitome is web two, where we have like essentially these all these companies are just giant databases and then they're connected through this separate layer of computing that is the network. And we just have these like big data silos. And this person described the innovation of blockchain is essentially the database and the network are now one thing. So you just write a program for a blockchain and you get database read writes and networking access like already. Like when you're building a smart contract for Ethereum, you just write one program and like the networking is all handled for you. And you're essentially just writing functions to update a database. And yeah, you don't even have to worry about it. So it's like clearly like a paradigm shift, like even to my naive years, I was like, oh, this is like fundamentally different. So it's kind of inspiring. And then like early on, I think a lot of people with crypto, it's just like price action is like, it's emotional, like just like trading, even like stocks It's like you get emotional with it. So it's kind of a hook. But as I was learning programming at the same time, I was, had this like technical perspective and like I could appreciate some of the innovations there. So it became like much more intellectually stimulating to like go down this path. And then like I just could continue learning about web development along the way because yeah, blockchains are fundamentally like a web technology, like all of our interfaces and everything are just like web apps. So it was actually a nice entry point. I did web development for like six months at a company before like formally entering the blockchain space like as a job. But yeah. That's one of the better explanations of the technology that I've heard. I think a lot of the time it's easy to get lost in the big vision stuff. And I really like how distilled down your description is that like effectively it's a new way of storing and transmitting data, right? And like what you do with it could be anything, but it's almost as if you just introduced a new type of database to the world and people are just figuring out what to build on top of it. I don't know, like I I, I feel like that's really easy for me to understand. Like I'm not a big Web3 developer. I've dabbled a little bit and played around with some of the tech and I understand some of the underlying concepts, but I think people often struggle with understanding like why and how it exists. Yeah, and if you if you think about even like Bitcoin, we say it's like all cryptocurrency and all the initial applications were currency, and there's reasons for that. But from a technical reason, it doesn't have to be currency that we're tracking in the first iteration. Like Bitcoin could be a number tracking system for something something else. Like we used to say these numbers signify something that's not currency. Just for the longevity of the system, I think it's important that the first one was cryptocurrency because there is like an economic incentive to keep it going. And it's kind of like that assumption is important. But yeah, we just have a database and we can decide what the numbers in the database mean. It's like a social convention more than a technical reason. So, but yeah, like it's just a database and we're defining how it can be updated. And it's interesting because it's permissionless. So we need some ways to do like access control and like transactions on the network cost money or you have explicit access control in your smart contracts if you want. But yeah, just a database. Compared to when you started, right, which was a couple of years ago, obviously a lot has happened in the Web3 space. From like a pure developer tooling and experience standpoint, because I know you focused on that quite a bit, like what's changed for a developer in Web3? I think generally we just have like way better tools. A lot of times in 
Web3, we talk about how bad the user experience is, like dealing with private keys and like having to sign stuff and just like the number of clicks you have to do. But I have to remind myself, like we're very much in like an infrastructure building phase still, like definitely moving out of it. It's getting better over time. But like for years, like we're just like building this infrastructure and down the road, we won't have ledgers that will like have private keys that if we lose, we're kind of just out of luck. So the infrastructure over the years, we've just gotten a lot more of it. It's gotten a lot better. Like I remember when I was teaching the blockchain developer bootcamp at Consensus, I was teaching like some debugging lessons and we're just like literally doing debugging on the command line um, where you have to like run your test network and then you put commands into another terminal window to like inspect transaction details and stuff. And you're stepping through transactions by like pressing keys on the keyboard. And some of the older developers in the course were like, I remember doing this with Java, like, 15 or 20 years ago or whatever. And it was just like, it just takes a long time to build this stuff. And I think when we're building infrastructure, there's like just fewer people interested in building infrastructure. I don't know. But like just the general developer tooling is getting a lot better. Also just like more libraries and stuff. Like one of my favorite things about Web3 is like, seems like most of the projects are building open source. And then if they're like building web apps and they're building their own libraries for their web apps, they're just gonna like open source them and share them with the community which is amazing. Like, it's so great to see it. Just like the community's helping everybody else learn. And I think there's this recognition that this is like a non-zero-sum game where like, if you if we're both building applications on Ethereum, my success is your success to some degree because we're both invested in this network and like what's good for the network generally, like getting users, discovering new design patterns, just like educating developers, like building this infrastructure is actually just like better for everybody. Like there's... Like Paradigm comes to mind as like a VC fund on, that's funding a lot of Ethereum projects and they're just like building a lot of infrastructure. Like their foundry project has just been really great for our team, just like building stuff faster, like more reliably. It's just like better infrastructure. So they're not profiting from it directly, but obviously indirectly through all of their investments. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Like I, you know, I don't think I'm that much older than you, but I, I definitely got started with coding a little younger. And I really like distinctly remember how difficult it was to set up a website when I was getting started. Like you really had to understand like, how do you configure a server? How do you even like buy a server? Like where does that live? You know, there was no AWS. And so it almost feels like blockchain stuff is in a similar state where it's like, the barrier to entry and the learning curve are fairly high because the tooling is fairly like new and no one's created like the AWS for web three. And granted you could deploy web three stuff in AWS, but like no one's created the simplified, like abstracted away equivalent yet. Yeah. I think this will also come down the road as like, we have more chains and more execution environments that are similar that people are interacting with. So like Ethereum has been kind of a go-to in the past bull market, there was like a lot of alternative like Solana and Avalanche. And I used to work at Solo, which is an yeah. EVM chain. But like the EVM emerged as a standard. And like now, like rollups on Ethereum are also getting a lot of activity. Um, so now there's like a whole bunch of very similar execution environments that users or developers can deploy to. So it's like Ethereum, Optimism, Arbitrum, Solo, Avalanche. Like these are all EVM chains. Yeah. I haven't been deploying to multiple chains recently, but like this is definitely, it's easy to imagine how like you just click a flag and like your stuff goes to different chains. 
Um, right. So, yeah. I think that will probably help a lot. Like when I see developers trying to build, you know, on whatever chain for the first time, often the most difficult part is getting like a dev environment or a test environment set up. Because like you can just deploy it, but you want to be able to actually like see what's going on first. And even like the install process can be pretty like daunting for people. And it seems like it's getting way smoother. Like I've definitely noticed a couple of the newer um, like platforms have a much clearer onboarding flow. But for a long time, it was like, I just like remember people running into all sorts of crazy errors and like weird library dependencies that weren't standardized. And just like, it was so sort of like wild Westy that it just made it difficult to start with. Yeah, I think early on, it was definitely like engineers. It was pretty clear, just like engineers building their thing and focused on their thing and they knew what they were doing and they weren't building for communities as much. I've seen a ton of increase in interest about like developer relations and advocacy and evangelism just across the board. And like, it's just like developer experience comes with that territory and like, oh, how do we actually just make this easier? And like, also just a recognition of like, a lot of Web3 projects are building more protocol level stuff. So like the customers of a protocol are developers and then developers are then going to build an application layer on top that kind of end users will use. So like just acknowledging that like the customers are developers and developer experience is critical has just like brought a lot of attention and like to this making install process easier, like making errors easy to read, like improving documentation, things like that. Like that has improved dramatically over even just the past like couple of years. Yeah. How do you deal with like the chicken or egg problem that exists there? And what I mean by that is there are a lot of different ways for developers to build in the Web3 world. But in aggregate, there aren't that many developers who know how to do it yet. And so you have this like weird disconnect where everyone's building all of these developer platforms and improving the developer experience and in parallel trying to increase the number of developers, but they're almost like racing against each other, right? Like, like when I see like these really cool like developer tools, sometimes no one's using them. Sometimes a lot of people are using them, but it feels like this weird like back and forth, like chicken or egg problem with building the platforms and getting people on it. Yeah, I think. I don't know what it was like before because like most of my experience is in Web3, but like hackathons feel like a crucial piece here where like there's been a lot of like very successful projects in across the board that have just like come out of hackathons. And like that's where from a personal experience doing DevRel, we get tons of great feedback from developers in real life when we're at hackathons, like helping people try to build stuff. And like 99% of projects aren't actually going to like become products or services, but like realistically it takes like one real solid product market fit to like make one because then people are going to look at that and see what they're using. And it also like makes it sustainable in the sense like that project will continue doing like things that are working for them. Yeah. There's like, it's not like wasted effort when like projects aren't successful because we're getting feedback and we're building community, we're engaging with developers, but it's it's definitely hard. Like finding that fit and finding out, like finding a project that can be sustainable and like use the tools is like, yeah, it's not easy. Are there any particular projects that come to mind that came out of hackathons that you were really impressed by? Just like early on in my my journey, I went to ETH Waterloo is in 2017. Oh, yeah. Was that the one where and, they launched CryptoKitties? Yep. 
that's what I was going to say. And yeah, the Dapper Labs guys were there and they had like cards and they had like, they were definitely prepared to like build CryptoKitties and like launch it there. It was very cool. Yeah. And then it got so successful that it like broke Ethereum for a bit. Just like gas got so insane that like it seemed like it could be an existential threat. It was cool to see it play out. But that was also just like one of my first real life experiences with like the Ethereum community and the energy was just so positive and exciting and people were talking about grand vision it was cool so it kind of like yeah it hooked me there yeah that feels really similar to when i started going to hackathons like it was pre-web3 but like i left with this similar feeling of like holy crap like anything is possible like people are doing crazy stuff out in the world and i feel like hackathons are really kind of a unique environment for that and I think you're absolutely right that it's like an incredible opportunity for DevRel teams to get feedback and see use cases and like share their technology with people. Often a lot of DevRel teams struggle with like justifying the ROI of going to them. But I think when you look at it from like a product feedback and development standpoint, it makes a lot of sense, especially for platforms. Yeah. Just on that piece, like the ROI on things, like right now we're, t- we're trying to figure out how to measure ROI on stuff. And like, this has been a persistent problem across like every DevRel team I've been on. Yep. It's like, oh, how do we like know, like what is the target thing we want a developer to do? And then like, how do we know, how do we track them through the funnel? How are they finding us? And then how are they progressing through our docs? And then like getting to that target thing. And it's like, I've never been with a team that has like, has a good answer for it. Feels like a very, it's like an art more than a science. We try to collect analytics and make data diff- data driven decisions, but it's a hard thing to do. But when you're like at a hackathon and you're building community and like you see people excited and you're getting feedback and you're bringing it back, it's like, yeah, I don't know how to quantify the value of that, but it's like, this feels right. Like I'm giving valuable information to the engineering team. We're making decisions based on this. And like, I don't know how to like put this into an equation to like justify it, but yeah, it definitely feels like the right way to go. Yeah. I think an age old problem with DevRel, like I... Last time I was like a full-time developer evangelist, you know, it was like 2011, 2012, like that era. And people were having the exact same conversation and it feels like no one solved it, at least solved it in a general way that everyone can apply. I think the thing that's often difficult about it is kind of exactly what you said, where it's like when you're there having those interactions with developers, the value is like so obvious. But when you translate it into marketing metrics, it loses so much of the depth. It's like, oh, great. Like, I had 500 impressions at this hackathon see my demo, or 10 people built a project on my platform. But like, there's so much more to it than that. And a lot of it is is not a number, you know, it's almost like a feeling or uh, an interaction that holds impact for someone. And like, I don't know, like, I, I don't really know what the right way to measure that is but like it clearly holds so much value and i actually think that like quantifying it too much you lose some of that totally yeah because like people you never know where you're gonna find like a really good make a really good connection with someone they're definitely not all equal like just impressions are not equal i host office hours weekly and it's just like a google calendar where like anybody can just come and like i'm just hanging out if people join and just like a couple months ago, this random person joined and like was interested in building something on Aztec. And like we offer grants for people building stuff, but they're like, oh no, I can't just like, cause my current employer says I can't. And I'm like, 
but they're like, I want to learn about stuff. So I was like, okay, cool. Like I have these ideas for projects that are kind of like on my backlog. So they found one that looks interesting. And like, they've been like one of the best contributors. Like I've worked closely with them over the past couple of months and we're building some of the coolest stuff, I think. And like, they're literally just doing it because they think it's interesting. Um, And like, we might even hire them now because they're like clearly interested and capable and motivated. So yeah, like you never know where these connections are going to come from. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. I love that story. And I feel like a lot of those kind of like developer evangelism interactions have such a like long-term value and payoff, you know, like you could have that meeting with someone that comes to your office hours. Maybe it takes them six months or a year to do anything that delivers like business value, quote unquote, but like, the fact that you were there and, and had that interaction is so important, right? Because otherwise they probably would have just churned and never come back. Oh yeah. When I was at Cello, I would do office hours twice a week. Mm-hmm. And developers would tell me, like, I'm literally choosing to build my application on Cello because you have office hours and I can come talk to you. They're like, I could deploy to any EVM chain, but like I need help. Like I don't know everything. So I want to be able to like know that I have some support. So they would like literally choose just because I would do office hours. And it was two hours a week, like Tuesday and Thursday mornings. So yeah, it means a lot to people for sure. Have you been able to take any of the things that like come up in office hours and turn them into content? Like I know one of the the big questions for DevRel is like, how do you improve docs? Like how do you improve developer experience? Are you able to use those office hours to like identify patterns and things like that? Oh yeah, like I I don't proactively like audit our documentation because like I mean there's this thing with DevRel where we can do almost anything in the company depending on what the company's goals are. But like DevRel is such a generalist job that it's like prioritization is actually a hard thing. I think documentation is actually one of the most important things that DevRel can contribute to or just like right. Like I own the docs at Aztec, but like it's a lot of stuff and I can't just like proactively audit it all the time, but whenever anybody asks me a question or references the docs and says like, oh, this doesn't seem right. And I'll be like, okay, I'll update. And it takes me five minutes to push an update on GitHub or like people will just update the docs automatically. Like they're open source and there's links on every page of our docs to like edit on GitHub. So like, yeah, over the past couple of months, like people just fix typos all the time. Like it's great. And I don't even ask for that. So that's wonderful. But yeah, whenever there's a question about our protocol, or like, even if it's not in our docs, if I get recurring questions, it's like clear that it should be in our docs. Like people are looking for this information and they come to office hours to to find it. So yeah, all community touch points are basically opportunities for like improving the docs for sure. That's awesome. So I'd love to talk a little more about Aztec. Like, can you just tell me what it is and like why it's different? Like I saw it was an encrypted blockchain. What does that mean in layman's terms? Yeah, so layman's terms. I was about to just describe it as like a zero knowledge roll up on Ethereum. Um, (laughs) Which I'm like, I have no idea what the hell you're talking about. Yeah, zero knowledge proofs are like a new cryptography tool. I guess they've been researched the past few decades, but they've really found a lot of traction in the blockchain space as like a, a way to scale blockchains, do provably like secure computation. They're called zero knowledge because they do have information hiding aspects. Generally in blockchain right now, people are using them for scalable, their scalability and not necessarily like using information hiding. So at Aztec, we're kind of taking advantage of both aspects. So 
basically like zero knowledge rule just means that we're publishing data to Ethereum and verifying any like state updates we do in a zero knowledge proof on Ethereum. So we don't have to maintain like a consensus layer or anything. We just have a smart contract that's running on Ethereum and we want to update our layer two. It's a transaction on Ethereum. So we don't have to like maintain a separate validator set and do all of that extra work. But we're encrypted. Like the way that we're different than a lot of other solutions is we actually maintain user privacy and like actually complete confidentiality on our layer two. So if I send you funds on Aztec, like when you look at a tran- Aztec transaction, the sender is hidden, the recipient's hidden, the amount's hidden, even the asset that you're sending is hidden. And since we're a roll up on Ethereum, like you to deposit ETH or DAI, which is a stable coin on Ethereum, like into Aztec. And then you use those as like the valuable assets that people transfer around. You can get other assets from Ethereum into Aztec through various mechanisms, but to keep it simple, like, yeah, we have Ethan die and we can transfer it around fully confidential on our layer two. So this is nice because like pretty much, well, most blockchains have completely transparent information. So you can see the sender and recipient of every transaction as well as the amount. So yeah, you can kind of like trace funds through the entire like Bitcoin or Ethereum network, any blockchain that doesn't have encrypted transactions. So yeah, I mean, people value financial privacy. Actually, in the United States, we have like the financial, I don't know if it's called the Financial Privacy Act, but I think it was in the 70s where like, yeah, like US citizens have the right to financial privacy. And it's valuable for a number of reasons. So this just brings that to Ethereum, basically. And there are other blockchains that are doing this, like Zcash has been around for a long time doing that, Monero as well. Aztec's different because we're a roll up on Ethereum. So it's very easy to get funds into Aztec from Ethereum. We we have this additional functionality with Aztec where you can actually interact with the Ethereum base layer from the rollup, mm-hmm. um, like from your Aztec account and interact with virtually any smart contract that already exists on Ethereum. So this gives us some programmability from the Aztec protocol. It adds anonymity of transaction sender, which is something that doesn't exist as far as I know on like any other protocol on Ethereum. So basically what this means is like if you wanna like we have our user facing application that's just a demo of like what the protocol can do. It's called zk.money. On that site, you can like deposit funds into Aztec. Once you have funds in Aztec, you can then interact with the DeFi integrations that we have on the application. So I think one of the most popular ones is swapping ETH for wrap staked ETH, which is like a liquid staking token. So you can earn some yield on your ETH while you hold it. Mm-hmm. And you can do this anonymously with Aztec. So when you look at the Ethereum block explorer, you just see someone from Aztec is doing this interaction on Ethereum for this amount of money, but we don't know who in Aztec is doing this. So Aztec has a privacy set of all the users that have ever interacted with the protocol in the past. You're essentially hiding in the crowd all historic Aztec users when you do an interaction with Ethereum from Aztec. So you get you can get anonymity with um, current Ethereum protocols if you're doing it through Aztec, which is cool if you want to like hide your transaction histories, you can hide your balances. Actually, the project I was talking about earlier that I'm working on with someone from Office Hours is like building an integration with the NFT marketplace. So then you could anonymously purchase, sell, auction, and bid on NFTs 
from your ESSEC account and nobody would know like who you are, like what your Ethereum wallet is, or even like if you have an NFT collection in your ESSEC wallet, like nobody would know that like, oh, this, all of these pieces belong in this person's wallet. Like they just know collectively the ESSEC protocol has this set of NFTs in in custody. So interesting. there's a lot of like, that was not layman's terms. Um, it's pretty complex oh. how it works, but. It's funny because like, I can kind of like grok what you're describing, but it's almost like this really interesting sort of like technical translation to consumer use cases problem, right? Where it's like, I sort of implicitly trust that my bank has privacy controls in place. You know, like, I don't think that you could figure out my transaction history very easily. You know, in Web3, effectively, that's technologically or cryptographically insured, right? So you're not necessarily just saying like, okay, yeah, like they're a good bank. They have good privacy controls and good software. You, there's some, I assume, piece of open source code that demonstrates that capability in a way that someone who has a technical understanding could verify. Yeah. And a lot of these protocols, like we get audits to like verify, not just like what we say we're doing, like we're actually doing, but like that the code is secure. And like, cause yeah, when we're dealing with funds like this, bugs are bad and funds can be locked. Like this has happened numerous times or just hack. Yeah. How do you like deal with, I don't know, like the fears that people have, like when you say like, it protects your privacy and hides your transactions. Like I think 99% of people you talk to will agree that that is a good thing. Like no one wants like randos looking at their bank statement. But I think there's also this underlying like perhaps political element of it of like, we also don't want the government looking at it, right? And like there are famous cases of, you know, the FBI like tracing people's blockchain, you know, transaction history and figuring out like whatever was going on there. Like, How do you sort of balance that of like, yes, like clearly there's a consumer need and desire and legal right to privacy, but then there is also this like underlying current of like, yeah, but like privacy from who? Yeah, I think at the protocol layer, we want, I think Vitalik, creator of Ethereum has written about this before, but essentially credible neutrality. We're at the protocol layer, we want credible neutrality where like, the protocol doesn't know who you are and it doesn't care who you are. It's just going to do what it's designed to do. Mm-hmm. And we implement controls at the appropriate places. Mm-hmm. And like exchanges makes a lot of sense. I think the conversations that I've been hearing say like it makes sense to do a lot of these like checks and controls and KYC at the application layer because it kind of defeats the purpose and it goes against the values of like a lot of people building this infrastructure. If the protocol is opinionated, then it's not better than the system that we have today. Like there's still mm-hmm. censorship concerns. Yep. Yeah. Historic. Like you just look at history and like regime change in countries. Like you can have a, you don't know who's going to be in power tomorrow. And we need to consider that when we're building infrastructure that's like potentially running. Yeah. Significant value. And like, yeah. Yeah. Designing what we're trying to build here. Yeah. I mean, it makes perfect sense. Like, I I think probably the average person in the U.S. is not that worried about, like, the government seizing their assets for no reason, right? But, like, 
there are many countries where that's not the case. And perhaps you do need privacy from the government to have a good life. Like there's, it's a lot of really interesting, like geopolitical questions intertwined with it. I mean, it wasn't that long ago that Canadian truckers had their bank accounts frozen. And if you gave people, if you gave the truckers money because you supported them, like you were taking on liability, like there was risk there. Like, that's crazy. When that happened, I was like, how is this not more discussed? Like, the government essentially just turned off people's bank accounts. Like, I didn't even know they could do that. But they can. And like, that's not even like a place with an unstable government. Where you'd like think, oh, regime change is going to happen here. Like, there's going to be a revolution in Canada. It's like, yeah, it's not at the top of my list. Yeah, (laughs) that's true. Yeah, it's interesting. And it's like, I mean, it comes back to a lot of these like really interesting, like complex free speech topics where it's like whether or not you agree with them, you have to kind of like make a decision about whether or not people have that right and how that would look if it was applied to something you did agree with. Right. And I I think that that's like where these things become really complex because it's not black and white and ultimately the rules do apply to everyone. And so you have to look at the rule from this like very existential perspective, not necessarily a case by case perspective. Totally. I'm actually really optimistic about this as well. Talk about credible neutrality at the protocol level, but using these tools that are being developed in the crypto space now, like zero knowledge proofs, we can actually like verify transaction histories with zero knowledge proofs mm-hmm. to basically trace funds through the system verify that they're not coming from like illicit activities or whatever. Mm -hmm. And we can verify that without revealing user information. Um, We can do that without revealing the actual transactions in the history, without revealing account balances or even account addresses. So it's easy to imagine like proactive compliance where applications basically say, oh, you have to submit a proof that says your funds do not come from any illicit sources for transactions to even happen. And this actually like flips compliance on its head because you're doing proactive compliance by saying like for a transaction to happen, it can't be on this, like be doing any business with anybody on this blacklist. Whereas like even in the banking system today, everything's like retroactive. You do investigations and like you discover that fraud's happening or money laundering's happening. And then you like remedy it after it's essentially happened. But like this would actually make it possible to build things that are arguably better than what we're doing today. So we've been talking a lot about like the financial technology side of things. Like, you know, certainly people are looking for consumer use cases as well, right? Like things that are not directly tied into monetary instruments. And obviously you can make the argument that like everything in the world somehow has a tie back to economics, but you know, me tweeting maybe doesn't, I'm not paying for that directly, right? So when you think about like these broader use cases and what people are building with Web3, like we went through this like major hype cycle last year and then kind of a crash. And I'm sure that will happen again at some point. Like how do you, as someone who's in this space, like distinguish reality from, from just hype, right? Like obviously there is a lot of real stuff going on, a lot of really smart people working on it, but there's also a lot of people who are just like, you know, promoting it regardless of the technological implications. Yeah, it's hard. Like, yeah, the like 2021 when NFTs were going crazy, it was like a lot of people that I had worked with in the past. I mean, just like 
people didn't get it. Like it came out of left field and then it drew a completely new audience to crypto. But the way I kind of deal with it is like, I look at what's actually being built. I look at the technology and like what's technically interesting, but not what's like capturing attention. And then also like, yeah, where, where are developers building new things? So like during the NFT craze, like developers were definitely building like new, they're innovating on NFT contracts and like building new, new stuff. But trying to look at more of that layer instead of the consumer application here, I guess I'm like looking at the infrastructure more because yeah, it's, I guess it's like a more objective perspective of like what's actually being built, what's actually being deployed as opposed to just like watching where the crowd's going. Yeah. And then it's like easier to when like the bear market comes and like money leaves. It's like the infrastructure is still there. All the innovation that happened during the bull market is still there. There's still more developers here now than like before the the boom started. Um, developers definitely leave, but I'm still like extremely optimistic, like definitely more optimistic now than ever. Yeah, I think you're probably right. It's certainly like generated a lot of interest. I, I think the thing I, I imagine is difficult and, and we've seen this as well with some of our work is like the a lot of the products being created, even for developers, are so linked to the financial instruments where it's like, Hey, like maybe someone's doing really innovative, impactful work and they suddenly have a lot of funding available for that work because their coin gains a lot of value. And then for a reason unrelated to the underlying technology, it loses a lot of value. And like, I don't know, like from a business building standpoint, like that's so like volatile, right? It's hard to be like, okay, like this technology still matters, even though my valuation got sliced in half for unrelated reasons. Yeah. Yeah. I think the people that I've seen be really successful, even if they're just like investors, it's like doing first principles reasoning, right? It's like looking at the fundamental economics of tokens or like, is this innovation actually like worth building or is it actually an innovation at all? Um, or like people just like, are they do they have a good marketing team or in people getting excited about it? But yeah, like early on in crypto, was, there was this acronym DYOR it's do your own research mm -hmm. and in a lot of ways that's like infeasible especially in a bull market where like everything's just like vying for your attention like you can't research every project but that's a real good way to stay grounded it's like if people are going nuts over something like is there actually something new here is it worth my time and energy and like a lot of times if you're just doing gut reaction it's, it's probably not like even for just new protocols that come out I wait for a long time before even just like playing, putting money into it just for security reasons. And then also like, there's a whole bunch of ways a project can go south, but the Lindy effect is real. And like the longer project has been around, the more likely it's legit. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Who out there do you see making really good, like educational content for developers in this space? Yeah. Nader Davitt comes to mind. He's just like, I know him quite well. Builds, he just like cranks out content. So, yeah. Also, like, I was at Consensus Academy and I helped like get the blockchain developer bootcamp started. I did that for two years and then I handed it off to Coogan Brennan and he ran it for the past like two or three years. But they, they just have like a massive, repository of content now just like all things ethereum um that consistently have like a lot of students and is well received so that's that's a pretty awesome course 
but those are the top two that come to mind. So you've created a lot of that content yourself too, right? Like in teaching that bootcamp and, you know, building developer experiences at Aztec and, you know, other places. Have you developed any kind of like core principles that you always come back to? Like, what are the things that are must haves when you're building out a new, you know, developer relations strategy? Yeah. I've actually, I actually have a Google slide deck. Um, I could share a link with you later, but like I put this together when I was, I started it at solo because like there were just consistent questions and like, not just from people interested in DevRel, but like people in the company that are like, oh, what does DevRel do? Everybody Mm -hmm. has a different idea of like what DevRel is and how DevRel can help them. Cause like, they're like, oh, DevRel, like they just have heard the job title and then they're like, oh, they can help me because they're like technical. So I, I started this deck. There's like, the gist is like, there's three domains that DevRel can really focus on. There's like product and engineering, there's community building, and then there's content and education. And there's like overlap with all those. I made this like three circle Venn diagram and like tried to put all these activities on the Venn diagram. And like, it depends on what stage your company's at for what is important to focus on. And like at Aztec, we're very much focusing on like engineering and product DevRels right now. Cause like we have a lot of cryptographers and engineers, like we need developer relations folks that can read GitHub. Like they can build web applications. They can go in, they can write some zero knowledge proof circuits potentially. Like they need to be very technical because we don't have, like our engineers are not writing documentation. They're just building stuff. Um, We need people that can basically do that and then do like, strong technical support on the community building side. I see moving into content and education as like a later phase and then communities involved in all this, but like hiring specific people that are just focused on community would be like probably the last step. And those are just like three different pillars. But like when I first joined Aztec, I also have this idea of like a pyramid in my mind of like, okay, what do I focus on first? Like the very base of it is just documentation. Mm -hmm. Like just writing in English, like plain words, what are the things that we do? How does the thing work? Like, what's the pseudocode? Yeah, code examples, basically like code snippets with context explained around them. And then from there, you can build educational programs off of your documentation. From there, you can go into more like community outreach pieces with like hackathons. And then from there, it's like empowering developers to just like be creative and just like support them however they need and like help them self-actualize as developers. Um, just yeah. like give them a tool in their tool belt. Like Aztec is just another tool in a developer's tool belt where like, if you want some sort of like encrypted transactions through Ethereum, like Aztec can help you with that if you are interested in building something like that. And we're like expanding in with future products into like to be more generally useful. But right now that's like kind of how I'm thinking about it. I think that's a really smart approach. I think sometimes people do what you're describing out of order. And it can create a lot of problems if you go too big too soon without the underlying like fundamentals sorted out. Yeah. And then there's this piece of like kind of captured it with DevRel being like the product and engineering aspect of DevRel. But DevRel is also like an interface between internal engineering teams and external developers. So like Mm -hmm. I'm communicating updates and like educational resources out to the community from the engineering team. But then I'm bringing feedback and input from the community back to the engineering team. And it's also really easy to just get focused on the external piece. And like something that I could probably improve is like 
internal feedback process and like how do we actually build structure on the internal side so like i can more efficiently funnel information out to the community not just like documentation but like release updates checking with people like posting in the proper channels because like this mm-hmm. people are everywhere they're on telegram and discord and email lists and everything so yeah cool awesome well we only have a couple of minutes left i feel like i've learned a lot and i really appreciate like your perspective into a pro in like doing devrel and web3 it's it reminds me a lot of like the early days of devrel and sort of like api platforms and that kind of things where people are developing like a new set of like foundational principles for it which i think is really cool the question i always like to end on and it's kind of open-ended but like is there anyone in like tech or devrel or the wider world that like if you could just like meet them and take them to lunch for a couple hours and pick their brain, like who is that person that you would, you know, aspirationally get to spend some time with? Yeah. You can't say Satoshi. (laughs) That would be a good answer. I was actually, I saw that question that you posted and I was thinking about it for a little while. Unless you know who he is, then you can say it, but. I don't, but I think. I would just go in like an unrelated tech domain because I think there's a lot of interesting things happening in tech generally. I've been playing with Jet Chat GPT lately and oh, yeah. I'm like very impressed. And it's also just like capturing the attention of the world. I think if I could go to lunch with like crash the open AI team lunch and just like get their perspective on the wider trends. Cause like that's also kind of the flip side of crypto where like we're doing a lot of open source stuff and like just being transparent as much as possible, doing public research. I feel like AI is a little bit different. I'm really curious, like, what are the trends the OpenAI team is seeing just with like people interacting with chat GPT? Mm-hmm. It's not at all clear. And then also just like, what are their predictions and like, what are they building? And I don't play with AI at all. Like I'm very ignorant on the topic. I've been using chat GPT, I think for coding snippets, like doing regular expressions with chat GPT has been like amazing, but yeah, it's probably AI, AI team. I like that. I um, they certainly have a really good instinct for what's going to get like people excited. I have no idea what it's going to turn into, but like, it's just like the hype and like the insanity around ChatGPT is is wild. Yeah, it is useful. I I've been just like it searching is. for. I used like I was looked up some recipes the other day. And I'm like just the fact that I don't have to like go through ads and then read this blog post that's mostly irrelevant to like look at a recipe. Um, I was like, just for that alone, I'm like, this is worth it. Yeah, yeah the, uh, the core uh, foundational problem in uh, cooking these days. Cool, man. Well, I really appreciate your time and I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you again. And it sounds like Aztec is doing some really cool stuff. So I hope people will check it out. If folks enjoyed, you know, listening, definitely like, like the podcast, subscribe. We'll do more episodes soon. And uh, happy hacking. Thanks, John. The State of Developer Education is brought to you by Major League Hacking. To find out more about Major League Hacking and how we're educating the next generation of developers and helping the world's leading companies reach them, visit sponsor.mlh.io. And make sure to search for developer education in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen, and click like and subscribe so that you don't miss any future episodes. And if you like it, please don't forget to leave a review and we'll give you a shout out on a future podcast. On behalf of the team here at Major League Hacking, thanks for listening and helping us empower the next generation of technologists. Happy hacking.